I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the sixth episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to this program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. So today we are going to be talking about pregnancy. I'm going to reach way back gosh, over a decade now. That's so weird. I feel like I just had my babies, but I'm going to (laughs) reach way back in the memory bank and think about my own experience, talk about my own experience. I have a great guest on today. And this is sort of a hot topic right now. Sadly, I I should say sadly, it's a hot topic right now. Um, Last week, late last week, um, Chrissy Teigen, she's a model, she's a very famous model, um, an entertainer. Um, she's the wife of, of, of John Legend, the singer John Legend. Um, she suffered a miscarriage. She was, she was quite public about it. She posted some really gutting, very sad pictures and uh, a, a statement about it on Instagram. And it was on Twitter. Um, and just a very, very sad statement. Um, and, you know, she's gotten some criticism for being so public. I feel like, look, you know, we live in, (laughs) we live in times where people have the ability to be public and some people just are very public people. And I, I, sad to see some people weren't, weren't so kind to her, but that is a a very, just a tragic situation. Um, but certainly pregnancy and, the risks uh, associated with pregnancy um, and miscarriage and all of those issues are, are, are on people's minds right now. Um, there's a new study out uh, about drinking coffee when pregnant, <laughs> another annoying study designed to um, scare pregnant women. We'll talk about that a little bit. And of course, uh, we're still dealing with COVID nationwide, so it's just a very scary t- time to be pregnant. I think on a good day, on a non-pandemic day, our culture uh, makes us feel like it's scary to be pregnant, but it must be doubly so um, during during the pandemic. Um, so my guest this week is a good friend, Chelsea Follett. She's the managing editor of humanprogress.org, which it's a project of Cato Institute. You should all follow the Human, Prog- Human Progress on Twitter. Um, I think they're on Facebook, Chelsea can tell us. Um, but in any way, you should you should always follow Human Progress. It's a wonderful, wonderful project out of Cato. Um, the project e- exists um, to educate the public on how life has gotten better, and they do that by providing free empirical data on long-term developments and trends. Um, Chelsea's writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Newsweek, Forbes, all all over the place, and she was named to Forbes 30 under 30 list. I can't even remember being under 30, but Chelsea it was under 30 at least in 2018 in the category of law and policy. She is super smart, and I'm really thrilled to have her on today. Thanks for coming on, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Julie, for having me and for that kind introduction <laughs> and your kind words about the website. We are on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, we're very active. <laughs> great, great, great. Um, okay, so so the reason you're on, and I didn't really mention this in the intro, is that you wrote your own, you wrote a story, an article in the Wash. I think it was in the Washington Examiner. Is that correct? That's correct. I was still on maternity leave when I wrote that article. That was almost uh, two years ago, and wow, bringing it back, uh, reading it brought back a lot of. Not so pleasant memories. It was a very dramatic birth experience, but I am so grateful. Before before you go, before you go, well, before you you go on, I wanted to 
sort of tee this up a little bit because I sort of, I blurted out that you'd written this article, but this article was called Human Progress Saved My Baby. And in it, Chelsea talks about her own, I really cannot stand the phrase birth story, birth story, because mine were more like birth dumpster fires. I never really had a sweet story. Story seems so calm and, and lovely, but, and neither did you really, I would say after reading this article. So again, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to, to let people know that, that this, this article, again, human progress saved my baby is worth a read. It's amazing. It's, it's, but it's tense. Um, so tell us the story, the story itself. And then, um, you know, also tell me why you wanted to write about it. Sure. So it's definitely the most personal article I have ever written or often. Um, my daughter is almost two now. She is the joy of my life, and I can't imagine life without her. And I am so grateful that we live in an era where technology was able to save her life during her birth. Uh, as the title of that op-ed uh, that you just read gives away, that is what the article is about. And we're also in an era where life-saving technologies are becoming more and more widespread globally. And that's just wonderful because no mother should ever have to lose a child and it's becoming rarer and rarer especially in the developed world so Chrissy uh, Teigen who Casey just mentioned unfortunately that is not a very common experience here uh, hopefully it will continue to become less common uh, but to catch you up on the story um, I didn't include uh, all of the details in that article I'll actually give you a few more details about what was going on so they do a lot of monitoring today when you're pregnant, fortunately. And they found that her growth rate, my daughter's growth rate, was not on track. Uh, she had something called intrauterine growth restriction, or IUGR. So they decided to induce. Um, and it was a fairly long and unpleasant labor. And then when the article picks up, uh, they found that her heart rate was not doing well with each contraction. So yeah. we did have an emergency C-section. And uh, when uh, that was over, they found that she had her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck four times. So that's what was causing her to not be able to descend with the contractions. That's also what was causing her to not be able to get as much uh, nutrition, which is what was causing the growth restriction. That's why she was so tiny, uh, but she's doing great now. She's very rambunctious, and uh, now she's actually over the 90th percentile for height for her age, and uh, she's doing very well. So very I'm just so grateful that the well, technology was there to allow her to be born. Yeah, and you know, that's the thing that's so scary is I think, well, first of all, for those who don't know, and I also had to have an emergency C-section. And so I don't think, you know, if you've either, if it's either a case of you having a baby and it, everything went great and you never, you know, you never had to have an emergency C-section or, or, you know, younger people who are listening who haven't yet been through this. I mean, emergency C-sections are tense, right? Because it's very rushed, at least mine was. And so that's nerve wracking. Right. Because you just did you feel it among the doctors and nurses like there's this sort of rushed feeling and like nervousness to get this baby out. Correct. Absolutely. It was terrifying. It was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through physically. Also, the recovery was not um, easy, but we got a baby out of it. So I'm very yeah. grateful that the yeah. technology was in place to allow for that. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is that in your article, too, you go through some of the statistics of you know, how much better maternal and, you know, 
infant mortality is, um, you know, and how, you know, fewer of these incidents there are, thank God. But, but the cord wrapping around a baby's neck, that is, that's, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to speak because I'm not a doctor and I, I didn't actually look for the data on this, but I think that's one of the reasons there's, there's still stillbirths that, you know, many times they can't see this. And they can't necessarily tell. And so, like you said, the, that monitoring of the heart, the indications of the growth, these are all things to point to that. But they still are limited in what they can see inside the womb. And so these medical, you know, these advances in, in technology is what's preventing, a, I would say, a lot more stillbirths. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And as that technology improves, we should expect to see these rates continue to decline. But unfortunately, there is still a huge gap in access to these technologies. If you look at the rates of stillbirth in rich versus poor countries, you see that actually 98% of the world's stillbirths take place in lower middle income countries. Only 2% of the world's stillbirths are in high income countries. So that technology being in place, having the uh, you know, infrastructure and wealth in your society that you can access it, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit too about how you feel about home birth. This is something that makes me very nervous. I have a friend who, um, who she almost lost um, her child due to a home birth. And, 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 and that in that case definitely could have been, and probably was due to a midwife, not, you know, handling the situation, um, properly. They got the, they got her to the hospital and she delivered and it was fine, but it was really touch and go. And the doctor said, you know, this really might not have ended well, but tell me, talk to me about your feelings on home birth, because again, I, I personally, I, I personally, home births have a higher, have a higher rate of, of resulting in either injury or death of the child. And it worries me a little bit about, about that, but you were talking, we were talking earlier about how, you know, there, there are requirements, for instance, midwives have to be able to, you know, have a plan to get you to the hospital. So give me your sense on home birth. It's, it's a popular trend now. And when I hear stories like this, you know, it worries me about people not having the medical professionals there. Right. So around the world, uh, home births are still very common, especially in poor countries. That can often be the norm in many communities, but we are seeing positive trends there as well. We're seeing more and more births attended by skilled health staff, even if those births aren't in hospitals. It's now over 85% of births around the world that are attended by nurses or doctors or other skilled health staff. In developed countries like the United States, uh, almost everyone opts, of course, to give birth in hospitals. You say that it's a popular trend to give birth at home, but it's actually a very small minority of women who opt to do that. And I'm probably a bit more libertarian than you on this topic in that I think that people, uh, you know, they can assess their own risk tolerance. And if that's something that a young, healthy woman wants to do to give birth at home near a hospital with a plan in place to get to one with a certified nurse midwife, then um, that's such a small minority of women who choose to do that. But I think they should have the freedom to choose to do that if that's what they want. But almost everyone who has the ability to give birth in a hospital who has access to that chooses to do that. And I think that's because most women do recognize that the technologies 
available in hospitals uh, can be life-saving and the standard of medical care that you can get in a hospital is just, it's life-saving. And so allowing more women around the world to have the option to give birth in a yeah. hospital, which again, for many people in many communities is not an option, uh, that could have a huge effect in terms of saving mothers and infants lives. There was an article earlier this year of UNICEF warning that uh, lack of hospital access due to, to lockdowns from the pandemic could actually cause a huge rise in child mortality yeah. um, because hospitals, they really just do have access to so many things that can save our lives. I mean, there's this, this sort of fallacy, I think, that whatever is natural <laughs> is good and whatever is artificial or modern is bad. But of course, we know that the natural rate of stillbirth, the natural rate of death in childhood, the natural rate of maternal mortality is extremely high. And it's only with technology and medical interventions that you can have a very low rate of infants and mothers dying. Yeah, well, viruses are natural and they're, they've killed a number of people here. <laughs> Coronavirus has killed a number of people in the United States. So I hope, you know, some people, I agree with you on that fallacy of believing everything that's natural. I mean, you know, there's plenty of, but, you know, botulism is natural too. <laughs> and you shouldn't really be, that, that is, that is one of the most frustrating fallacies um, uh, out there. And, you know, another, another natural thing is quinoa. I'm not interested in eating quinoa either. It, it doesn't taste good. So look, it's not all good. And, <laughs> and I think the more that we tackle that fallacy, the better. But I do think that, you know, I actually agree with you. I think that people should, I, I don't think that I'm necessarily, I, I don't think that I'm sort of less libertarian on this. I do think that people should have the choice. And I like that how you, how you framed that of saying, you know, people should should look at their risks and make decisions that are, you know, based on, you know, are they a healthy younger person having a child? And they probably, um, this isn't as risky a decision. But I will say what frustrates me, and I, you know, you brought up the this sort of fallacy of natural and and synthetic, and you know, that's part of the problem is that is that I think in order to make the decisions, you should make, or or I think the best way to do it is to make an informed decision. I think in pre in pregnancy. There's so much misinformation out there, and there's there's so much pressure, and there's so much guilt, and there's so much shaming. Um, and I don't want I don't want to you know sort of go off on I don't want to whine about things um, on this, but it, but I do think you know one of the I, I mentioned in my intro, there's a new study out about drinking coffee when pregnant, right? And Lenore Skenazy wrote a piece last week over at Reason, and I blogged on this just a little bit. Um, about about this issue, this new study out that basically says that if you are, <laughs> this is wild, if you are pregnant or even thinking about become pregnant, becoming pregnant, you should you should entirely stop drinking coffee. Um, have have you seen this study? Did you see the study out? I I'm not familiar with the study, but that is uh, both unrealistic and it goes against the vast majority of studies that I've heard on this topic. Obviously. Uh, the relationship between caffeine and pregnancy outcomes has been studied very extensively, and the vast majority of evidence says that a reasonable amount, like one cup of coffee a day, has no effects on your ability to conceive or to have a healthy child and no relationship to adverse outcomes. So that's very 
surprising to me that this study would say the opposite, but it may also be a case of the media presenting a study um, in a way that will maximize clicks and that might not be what yeah. the study itself says. I'm not familiar with the actual study, but that that often is the case. Yeah, well, uh, this, this, this study was published in the British Medical Journal. So, you know, what, right there, when you, when you, let, you know, let's just pretend we're both sitting here, we're pregnant, you know, we're scanning the news in the morning because I will tell you that this, you are absolutely right. This new study generated, you know, thousands of, of head, you know, this sort of hyper, I shouldn't say thousands, but I, you know, I'm sure it did, but around the world, these sort of hyperbolic, hyperbolic um, headlines, you know, you know, saying you're, you're going to kill your kid if you have that cappuccino. Um, but, it, but it was, so, so, you know, you've got the media sort of hysterics and they love this. Like you said, it, it generates clicks and to media outlets, that's what matters. Um, but this was published in the British Medical Journal. The, the BMJ is a very respected medical journal. Um, and it was conducted by, you know, Professor Jack, Jack E. James. Um, and it, it, it turns out, though, that Dr. James um, has written two books um, and has sort of presented himself lately as sort of an anti-caffeine activist, okay? These are things you, you don't learn. You, you have to research it, right? Like you read the article in the Daily Mail, you don't know that this Professor James is an anti-caffeine activist and you don't know that he's written two very lengthy books about the dangers of caffeine. Um, so, but you do that once you do the research. But as a pregnant woman, you read this and you go, oh gosh, you know, I'm doing terrible harm to my, my, my baby. What's great though and again, I blogged about this last week, is, um, and Lenore also mentions this, that 20 public health officials, which were mainly women, I think there was one man among this list of 20 public health officials, wrote a letter um, to the British Medical Journal saying, you know, they, it actually said um, these, we believe the review and its recommendations should be interpreted with extreme caution. And <laughs> I think for, for those of us who sort of follow the scientific world, that's basically saying, toss this out. I mean, that is not, the, and they, they, the press release or the, the letter that they write goes into details about why this isn't, a, and it's not, it's got a lot of holes and this study has a lot of holes in it and it really, really shouldn't have passed muster. In fact, I don't think that it should have even been published in the, in, in the British medical journal. But the point is, is that the damage has been done, right? Like I can sit here and say, Hey, get, guess what guys, there's a lot of doubt for this. This study, but for the average person who's just scrolling through headlines in the morning, they're going to see this and it's going to scare them. Um, stress is another issue that pregnant women have to worry about, and so what frustrates me is sort of the this sort of constant drumbeat that you're doing harm to your child um, that I think really makes being pregnant unpleasant. Was was that something that re you really dealt with? I mean, you are a smart person. You follow this stuff. You sort of know, you know. That that pre certainly pregnancy in the United States is safer than anywhere else. Um, but you know, is this something that you dealt with when you were when you were pregnant? Absolutely. I think that no matter how well informed you are, you kind of can't help it because there is just so much alarmism around pregnancy and birth and parenting. It can be really hard not to give into that. Uh, you know, that fear. And again, this speaks to that strange hatred of modernity and modern conveniences like coffee uh, that uh, is just illogical. You also sent me an article about a woman who thought that uh, she was able to conceive a child because she basically stopped touching plastic and she started <laughs> buying organic groceries and she, she right. switched to something she called chemical-free toothpaste. 
yeah, which yeah. is ridiculous because everything is made of chemicals. The human body is made of chemicals. It's like saying that she wrote a sentence without any letters in it. It's not possible, but it speaks to this <laughs> widespread ignorance of and suspicion of modernity and science. And again, that that strange belief that whatever is natural is good and anything artificial is bad, because I think she probably meant to write all natural toothpaste. But of course, just because something is natural does not mean it's good for you. In the area where I live, in the park where we often walk through, we're always very careful to keep our daughter away from these really striking berries on bright pink stems that grow everywhere here called pokeberries. And a single one of them is poisonous enough to actually kill a small child. It's terrifying, but they're completely natural. So if uh, all you care about is eating what's natural, you could eat these very poisonous berries. Nature is filled with plenty of toxic and poisonous things, and there are plenty of man-made things that are harmless. A normal amount of coffee has no adverse effects on pregnancy. They can now grow meat in a lab in a Petri dish, and it's perfectly safe to consume. It's been tested to death, and it's safe, but it's not natural. Right, right, right. You know, uh, just to catch the listeners up, so... I had sent Kelsey some some um, a blog that actually my my friend Kelsey Bowler um, uh, had sent me, and Kelsey is at IWF. She does a lot of work on our on, on the comm side, and she also writes on a number of issues. Um, but she had sent me this. You know, she has just had a child as well, um, and so she sent me this blog uh, um, called. Oh, let's see what. Do I have it written down here? Southern Curls and Pearls blog. Okay. Um, And this is what Chelsea was just referring to. So this blog is apparently, and I don't really read this stuff. So I was, I was really appreciative that Kelsey sent this to me. And this is going to get confusing, by the way, because it's Chelsea and Kelsey. So let me see if I can keep this, um, this straight here. But anyway, so Kelsey sent me this blog. um, And, and apparently it's very popular. She has 1.1 million followers on Instagram. Now I, I, you, you can tell me someone has five followers on Instagram and I, so I'm a moron on this stuff. I don't, I guess, but I've been told that's a lot. (laughs) So she's very popular. And what's so depressing is that she said um, that this was her most requested blog post in the 10 years since she's been a blogger. And I'll say, I'll tell you why that's depressing. And Chelsea kind of touched on this, that she, she talks about, how she calls it, you know, pregnancy Q&A, where she shared her story on trying to conceive, okay? And she, she go, I don't want to bore anyone with this, but this is kind of fascinating. She goes and she has this long story where she talk, she does not give any specifics. She says, after receiving some negative results from a doctor's visit. So she, she, I guess, ostensibly she and her husband got tested. And she, again, she does not say what those tests are. Um, she says, you know, they got these tests about a year into our journey, which means trying to have, trying to conceive. Um, the doctor said we would probably have to resort to IVF to get pregnant. Okay. So she says for the next four months. So before doing that, she said for the next four months, she and her husband prioritized our health. Um, she says they went on a journey to eat as healthy as possible and cut out as many toxins as we could. And to do that, they ate organic and Chelsea and I can both talk about that. They ditched our, she ditched her Teflon pots and pans and threw out all of the plastic in our kitchen. So, you know, Chelsea sort of talked, 
touched on this stuff, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, you know, tossing out toxins and, and, and she said, you know, going chemical free in my toothpaste, but, you know, even when she talks about eating, equating healthier with organic food, there are tons of studies on this issue. But my favorite is, is, and Chelsea, I'm sure you know, the study out at Stanford University that found no significant nutritional difference between organic and conventional food. And that both conventional, and when I say conventional, that is using synthetic pesticides. Now, the, the thing that a lot of people don't know is organic food, uh, organic farmers also use pesticides, but they use what's called, what do they call it, Chelsea? Is it like natural pesticides, non-synthetic um, pesticides? Um, but in many cases, the synthetic pesticides are safer and leave less of a residue. So, you know, this idea that eating organic is just automatically healthy is, is a fallacy. Um, and it, it, it also leads to <laughs> spending more at the grocery store. Um, and she go, there's other things, you know, she talks about, you know, throwing out all of her plastics. I mean, unless you're actually eating the plastic container that you put your leftovers in, uh, you don't actually need to toss your plastic out. You're not harming yourself if you, you know, eat food that comes in a plastic container. Um, so this is the kind of thing though that, and again, this was related to pregnancy because of course, then she says after this, you know, four months time of, you know, eating or only organic and tossing out our plastic, we got pregnant. Um, and so the message being conveyed there is if you don't get pregnant, if you have significant, because again, she doesn't tell the listener or the reader what her tests were. So we don't know what was wrong with her. Um, so it tells every woman who's dealing with infertility that you're not working hard enough. Did you clean your closet out of, or your you know cabinets out of plastic? Did you switch entirely to organic? Did you prioritize your health? Um, and did you stop drinking coffee? Uh, so, I mean, I think these are the kinds of things that really make it hard on women and especially women who are struggling to get pregnant. Sort of a, not really a question at the end of that, Chelsea, but you, you know, I no, think you completely, agree I agree. I agree completely. And I think that all of this misinformation and alarmism and hysteria does have a real cost because stress, and you touched on this earlier, stress is something that we know is actually associated with a lot of adverse outcomes. Being under high stress is actually associated with having a harder time conceiving a child and with worse outcomes for pregnancy. So stressing out women unnecessarily by making them worry that they're not able to become pregnant because their toothpaste isn't organic, uh, that could actually be making things actively worse. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, I didn't, I, I, I don't ever really say that I had fertility issues because I really didn't, but I had miscarriages and, um, which is often, and, and, you know, sometimes that is, that is, that is a fertility. I mean, it, it's, it's, you gotta be careful with the words you use here because, but there are problems of women conceiving, but not then being able to carry the, pre the pregnancy to term. And it's all, it's all kind of complicated because that's not really a fertility issue. That's a sort of hanging on to an issue or, or whatever. But I remember during those times you know, where the doctor would say, you just need to calm down, right? Calm and I, uh, like, uh, you know, you, you have that like emoji with the head explosion. That's, that's hard. <laughs> it is hard. To it calm, is. It's hard to calm down when you're, 
you know, in a situation, you know, where you're trying very hard to, to have children and, and, you know, things aren't going well and, and you have the tragedy, you know, we talked about Chrissy Teigen, you know, what she, what I thought what she wrote was, was just gutting, you know, just so it, it and it, it reminded me a lot how I felt. And so to add on this layer of, um, it was interesting, Chelsea, I, I was in a doctor's office, I had to get some test work done. And, um, there was a September issue of, um, of InStyle. So, you know, like anyone does, I was sitting around reading this and there was an article with Kristen Wiig from Saturday Night Live. Um, she has nine month old twins now. They're probably 12 months old now, but, um, and they were born via surrogate. And she had a very interesting, she said some really interesting things in her interview talking about, you know, they, they tried IVF for three years. She and her partner, it was, she said it was a very long road. It was emotionally and spiritually exhausting. It, she said, you know, it, it, it was a very difficult time in my life. I wasn't myself. And then there's this one line that just struck me. So she talks about once the surrogate is pregnant and they're at the doctor's office and, and she and her partner and the surrogate are there all together for a checkup and they feel the baby kick for the first time. And she said, I was over the moon feeling them kick. And then she says, but then I, I would get in my head and ask myself all these questions like, why couldn't I do this? Right. And it's so sad. That's just so sad because, um, I think when you have blogs and I don't mean to beat up on that blogger, I think she was well-meaning, but you know, there is this sense of, you know, you think about Kristen Wiig, you know, doubting herself and constantly questioning herself. And for those women who don't have the money to go the circus surrogacy route or the IVF route, and that, let me, t that is an expensive, I never had that. I had never had IVF, but it's very expensive, very time consuming, very, you know, you get, you're having hormones pumped into you. It's very emotional. Um, so I think, you know, you've got a situation here where then you have in your head that, oh, maybe I, I didn't prioritize my health or maybe I, I'm using plastic containers or Teflon, or maybe there's too many pesticides on my, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that makes it just, it, it, it makes pregnancy, it makes the journey, it makes everything associated with it very hard. And I, I wish there was less of that. I really wish that there was less of that kind of noise um, around pregnancy. Definitely. And it's, it's unnecessary and it's illogical. And so many women blame themselves, but especially with first trimester miscarriages, it's usually due to a chromosomal issue or something that you can't control. It's in any case, definitely not because of your brand of toothpaste. It's very rarely due to anything external. And so the, the culture that has women constantly blaming themselves and being afraid that their every decision to eat, you know, a non-organic piece of food could be harming their child, I think is what's toxic. And it's very illogical. GMOs, for example, are one uh, of the targets often of hate from the anti-modernity crowd. Yeah. And the old method of creating new uh, breeds of, you know, wheat and other foods that we eat before modern genetic modification was to just sort of randomly scramble the genes all at once until you got a usable product. And many organic uh, food products are created that way. GMOs yes. are much more specific. It's just changing a single gene at a time. So it can't possibly be less safe. 
But you're leaving out the best part, Chelsea, which is they like would blast it. It was truly like a sci-fi. It was like a sci-fi movie. They would blast it with ra- wouldn't they blast it with like radioactivity? Like they they would just there it was just it it was like the stuff of of like a you know a 1950s sci-fi movie At, because they didn't really know what monster was going to come out of this. They would just blast it and then hope. They got something and what I don't, and I'm terrible to put you on the spot like this because I I should know this, but what are some of the things that we got out of that? Like, you know, different colored cauliflower. I can't remember. There are some odd things that came out of that sort of scrambling of genes. Do you, do you know offhand? I don't have it off the top of my head, but I know one of the like top organic, uh, strands of wheat came out of that I think it was wheat a lot of very popular organic foods did a lot of foods that people who hate uh, you know GMOs that have no problem with came out of this as you say very sci-fi sort of method of blasting things with radioactivity and by the way saying radioactivity that's not to uh, you know dismiss this method they're not unsafe Uh, neither are GMO foods Uh, it's it just sounds very unnatural. And again, that gets to this strange fallacy that somehow everything natural is good and everything artificial or modern is bad, which especially in the case of pregnancy, where the natural rate of death and childbirth and the natural rate of stillbirth and childhood death is so high, that's a very dangerous fallacy to subscribe to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Um, I really love talking about this issue and I could talk about it for hours more. And I do think that, you know, it's one thing that's funny. And one thing I, I know I need to wrap this up, but one thing that's funny is we've been talking about pregnancy and getting pregnant and the risks involved, but you know, your baby is now an active, healthy. I love the word rambunctious. I think that is definitely a word that used it needs to be used more. It's not used nearly enough. The word rambunctious is so, it just elicits such a cute you know, image in my mind. Um, and so she's, you know, happy. She, you said she's two, correct? She's almost two. She'll turn two at the end of this year. And she is, oh my gosh, constantly running around our townhouse up and down the stairs. She always wants to be outside running through the park and exploring. She's learning new words each day. And just seeing her grow and explore is, you know, the truly the highlight and joy of my life. I'm so, so grateful. I know I keep saying this, but I'm just so grateful to have her in my life and I can't imagine if I had gone through that pregnancy and birth in an era without modern medical technology or in an area of the world without access to it how my life would be well I'm so glad you came on and again it's it you know I'm sure you've heard this before the days are long but the years are short and that is definitely where I am right now because my youngest is 10 and it feels like it has flown by and it has it really has and it does it does for everyone I am not the only one who uses that phrase so enjoy this time and again I think it's so important your message about that and your article again I really encourage people to read Chelsea's article I think it's important in an era where people sort of stick their nose up at things like automation factories are wonderful i don't know why factories are now a you say the word factorization or you know automation or factories and it's like a pejorative i mean this stuff automation you know helped humans get away from 
you know, from injuries, from heavy lifting, from, you know, uh, you know, painful, painful lives, working lives at the very least. And so, um, and really painful all the time. Um, there are many things about modernity that are sort of, you know, we who live in modern times and benefit from modern times, we sort of roll our eyes. Um, but these are wonderful things. And modern medicine that has allowed more babies to be born and has allowed women to enjoy their children and avoid the tragedy that was quite common only a hundred years ago when you look at child mortality rates and maternal mortality rates, pretty horrifying. So I think this is a really important article that you wrote and thanks for coming on and talking to me about this. Thank you, Julie. So as, as listeners um, to this podcast know, I usually end the podcast by talking um, about something in the past um, to give people perspective on really just how crappy life was. <laughs> life was um, in the past. I mean, you know, we, we sort of live in an age where there's Downton Abbey or there's, you know, another sort of PBS costume drama where everyone looks so healthy and their teeth are straight. Their teeth aren't just straight, they're veneered. They're Hollywood veneered. Um, and they look like they smell good and their clothing is all clean. And, um, you know, even when there's tragedy, uh, the, uh, you know, it's 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 done in such a beautiful way, right? It's filmed beautifully, and there's you know rarely any um, anything unpleasant about the scene. But that was not what it was like. And I wanted to read actually a little bit from Chelsea's piece because she gets into some of the data that we didn't get into, and I think it's kind of important. She says the specifics of my daughter's situation may have been unusual, but her survival is an example of a broader trend. Thanks to medical advances, the global rate of stillbirth per 1,000 births has fallen from 24 in the year 2000 to 18 in 2015, with decreases seen in all regions of the world. In my daughter's case, for example, those advances included external monitoring of the fetal heart rate during labor and a cesarean delivery. Not only have there, has there been progress in reducing stillbirths, but more and more children survived to see their first birthday. The global infant mortality rate per 1,000 live births fell from 65 in 1990 to less than 30 in 2017, according to the World Bank. She goes on to talk about as extreme poverty becomes more rare and as living standards rise and as small changes in sanitation and nutrition exert a dramatic effect on infant health, more babies live. And I think one thing we forget is that extreme poverty is very rare today. In 1820, in 1820 94% of the world population lived in extreme poverty. We're talking about people starving to death, people not having shelter, literally walking around without proper clothing. This is extreme poverty. And, and think about that. In 1820, 94% of the world lived in extreme poverty. By 1990, so over 100 years later, later that number was 34.8%. In 2015, that was just 9%. When, when the world, when the world's living standards rise, when people become wealthier, when they have uh, more money to spend, for instance, on healthcare, and when countries have more money to spend on, for instance, medical care and medical research, um, everyone's lives improves. So um, I'm really thrilled that we got to talk about this today. I think it's an important subject. And as Chelsea and as the Human Progress uh, Project continually tries to, to remind us, 
uh, our lives are improving every day. Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get Bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.